All right, thank you, Mike. Uh, Mike is actually the chair of our elders this year, and uh, he and his family have been a blessing to us. So, release initiative, some of you may be the first you've even heard about it, uh, but um, we undertook this beginning in the fall of 21. Uh, we have, as a church, we've been carrying a debt for 20 years on our facility and our property. We love our place, uh, but it's kind of like your house. You know, it's one of those things you can't just always pay for up front. And so we've been carrying this debt. And uh, um, in, um, two, three years ago, uh, 2020, uh, we said we got to get out of debt because we have actually a balloon payment coming up in June. Um, that uh, we are going to have to refinance if we didn't have it paid off. So anyway, in January 2020, we had a million-dollar debt, which was a lot. And so we decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to try to retire that debt. And then uh, COVID hit and changed everything. So we weren't able to actually begin the initiative. But uh, the release init initiative is a way to retire the debt. But also beyond that, uh, we have five, uh, four other initiatives and uh, basically, they are to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to build up, to make disciples, to continue to care for uh, the facility and property that we have, and also to continue our day-to-day -day ministry of moving people on a simple journey toward Jesus. So if you don't know a lot about Released, uh, these booklets, there's some out on the table, the big table in the lobby. Uh, grab one, and it will tell you a lot more about it. But I want to update you as far as what we could do. So we began to put energy into this and effort into this and prayer into this. And uh, so the last time I came and talked to you, we had uh, whittled that debt of a million dollars down to $378,000 as of, I don't know, it was November, something like that. And actually last year, uh, we were able to, pl uh, to pay at different times uh, and collectively $160,000 in addition to what we were already paying on that. So anyway, we end the year, last thing you know, 378000 And so we, you guys are amazing in your giving, uh, just amazing. And God has multiplied. Thank you, Mike, for reminding us that God provides nourishment where there is no logic, no reason for that. Uh, so when we get to the end of the year, and it's all settling down, and I said, uh, our financial secretary, Tammy, what can we do? I said, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to really about cut that in half, if possible, and so anyway, collectively everything, we were able to put another $178,000 on that debt. And so, I mean that, so now we are at $200,000, uh, which is amazing down uh, from, from a million dollars three years ago through all of this. And we do have that looming debt uh, payment or whatever balloon coming up. I, I'm not worried about it though because God's going to provide and uh, going to uh, meet all of our needs. He always does. Uh, but I want to thank you all and, and encourage you all, and let's continue. Let's not let up now. Let's be intense like a gazelle, right, that Dave Ramsey might say, and uh, trying to escape the, the uh, leopard of debt that chases all of us. So uh, I'm excited about that. God is good, and you guys are awesome. So thank you so much for your giving. Let's keep on until we get rid of that. And then what I'm more concerned about and more excited about is not paying off the mortgage, but what we're going to be able to do after the mortgage is paid off. We're going to be debt-free and be able to do so much more. So thank all of you for giving, and thanks, Mike, for your testimony this morning. Well, we're going to continue on in our sermon series. We've been for a few weeks. And, um, you know, um, back in, um, this was before most of our time. Some of you were alive, but most of us were not. But one of the darkest periods of our world and our nation's history was World War II. The U.S. had been drawn into the war 
uh, at Pearl Harbor. You might remember that. The Japanese came in on a beautiful Sunday morning, December the 7th, 1941, and bombed our airport there. Our forces were uh, decimated, and uh, we were trying to collect ourselves because it was unexpected. And uh, then the Japanese immediately turned their attention to the Philippines, where we had uh, several military forces stationed as well. And uh, they went in and they wiped out half of the Air Force in like 45 minutes. So it was two, uh, uh, two successes very quickly against us. And then they turned their attention to our ground troops. And they were being led at that point by General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, he commanded the troops. And for two months, he tried to defend uh, the islands there. But the, uh, the war turned against him. And finally, President Franklin uh, Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to abandon the United States and Filipino troops. Now imagine what that would be like, these people that you were commanding, and um, he uh, was commanded to leave them. And MacArthur reluctantly did so. He obeyed the commander-in-chief, and he forced the largest surrender in U.S. history. 75,000 soldiers were surrendered to the Japanese who immediately put them into prison camps in Manila. MacArthur and his family rode 560 miles through treacherous seas and Japanese um, gunfire to safety. But he made this promise to his troops. You probably remember this more than anything. And the Filipino people, he said, I will return. I shall return. And it broke his heart to leave, but he said, I will come back and set you free. And the war raged on for two and a half more years before finally MacArthur was able to return, bringing with him 280,000 troops and liberated the, the Philippines and the prisoners that were there. And what strikes me about this is the fact that even though he didn't know how he was going to do it, he committed himself, I will return and set you guys free. That was amazing. He was a man of his word. And today I'm going to be talking a little bit about integrity and about keeping your word, which is kind of a lost art and a lost guilt ability today in our world. Like I said, we've been in a study of the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks now, and we're going to today talk about some sensitive issues. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus covers a lot of just random topics, but I find that all of them are practical topics, and, and all of us are going to be touched in different ways by Jesus' teachings. And one thing that's common, though, is that when he teaches, he touches us in ways that are painful, that hurt, that hit us right where we're at. And today I find that the subject is very much like that, and I understand that it's going to be painful for many of us, and understand that we're going to have to kind of listen, uh, absorb, and then find the freedom that Jesus offers us at the end of that. So uh, stay with me if you would. Two weeks ago, we talked about the law. We talked about how the religious people of Jesus' day had made up their own laws, which we like to do as well, to justify our actions and what we want to do. And many of their laws actually restricted the commandments of God. And it also, we said, it also expanded the permissions or the parameters of God. They, they really kind of made these law, laws kind of flexible so they could get away with what they wanted to. They might keep the letter of the law, but they would break the spirit of the law. And nowhere do we see this more uh, than in our topic today, what we're going to be looking at. They were very concerned about their appearance. They wanted to look good on the outside but they had no concern about the heart, about who they were on the inside. And therefore, their word didn't amount to much. They, they weren't dependable. They, they were just trying to figure out ways to get around God's laws. Now, today we call this legalism, and legalism is still very alive and well in many religious people today. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, that religion 
is different than Christianity. Religion is looking good on the outside, abiding by a bunch of laws and rules, but not having the real heart of God inside of us. So one of the areas that Jesus saw a lot of hypocrisy in was in sexual purity. For the religious leaders of Jesus' day, all that mattered to them, being very you know, strict law keeper, rule keepers, was that if you were married, you did not commit adultery. I mean, after all, this was a law and is a law, by the way, one of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But they ignored the Tenth Commandment that followed closely, which was, you shall not covet, which also includes the line saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So they were concerned about adultery itself, but not anything else around it. They didn't worry about premarital sex or postmarital sex or lust or anything like that. And that carried over into also how they treated divorce. In fact, in that day, divorce was so easy that you could get out of the marriage and then you could have sex with anybody you wanted to. And so you would not commit adultery. That was their uh, way of looking at it. That was their framework. So they expanded their permission for divorce so that a man could divorce his wife with any reason, with just a written notice saying, I don't want to be married anymore which kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? I mean, there's not really, you don't have to have a reason for divorce today. I just don't want to be married anymore. Tired of her? Divorce. Found somebody more attractive? Divorce. Don't like her cooking? Divorce. Irreconcilable differences? Divorce. It doesn't matter. Not only did it undermine God's plan for their lives and for the, the sanctity of marriage, but also left women in that day in a really terrible place because they had no rights. They were often tossed aside they were left to defend for themselves, sometimes even becoming beggars or prostitutes. That was where that was, they were leaving their wives, and yet they could still say that they were following the law. So that's the environment that Jesus came into and the attitude, the religious attitude of that day. In the midst of this, Jesus shatters their world. In Matthew chapter 5, here's what he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said, you are correct. You are right. The law stands. Adultery is sin, but you can't stop there. You can't limit it just to that. That's not just God's intention, not just the act. He said, the lust that leads someone to adultery is as wrong as well, is wrong as well. In fact, any sexual act or thought that violates the sanctity of sex between, within marriage of a man and a woman is adulterous. Anything beyond that's adulterous. And I know that that's hard to hear in our world today, and it's unpopular, and the world's pressing us to say it's not true, but that's what God says. When they limited the command to just the act of adultery, then extramarital sex, anything else was fair game. Sex before marriage was okay. They were okay if the other person was married, but they weren't. And if they were divorced or widowed, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And even if you were married, they could engage in sexual fantasies and thoughts and activities as long as there was no sexual intercourse. As I was reading this, something came to mind because it sounded familiar. Some of you will remember this. In the late 90s, our president at the time, Bill Clinton, stood before the nation and declared, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. You guys probably remember that, a lot of us. And later on, he had to admit that, yes, while maybe he had not had intercourse with the woman, he did have an inappropriate physical relationship with that woman. History may have to remind you about that if you didn't know about it. But that was kind of the leadership of that day. And we've gone through that as a nation, and it's devastating. And these were the religious leaders who were 
making and promoting these rules. Jesus said, though, you have missed the heart of God in all of this. You're just narrowly focusing on one thing. You miss what God really wants in this. The commandment about sexual purity is not just an act, but it's about overall purity. It's about the heart, respecting the covenant marriage, marriage covenant and the commitment between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that is sin. You know, the Bible is very clear about sexual impurity, including premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, other sexual sins, and along with that lust. In fact, he says, don't even go as far as giving into lustful thoughts because that's where it starts. That's what Jesus said. Now let's fast forward today to our sexualized world. We are bombarded with sex everywhere. I mean, it's in advertising, toothpaste, or any number of things, it's everywhere. Media, internet. And you might think, well, you know what Jesus said back in that day? I mean, that is impossible. We cannot protect ourselves against thoughts and lust and, and letting ourselves go there. That's not impossible. It's what we're called to do. You know, Jesus, though, maybe we want to clarify that Jesus isn't talking about a passing glance at someone to acknowledge that person is attractive. He's talking about the second look. He's talking about the appraising look that leads to desire and fantasy. You know, all the time we hear people say, well, it doesn't hurt to look. Nothing wrong with looking. Well, actually, lust begins with the eyes. Looking, longing, lingering, thinking, fantasizing. And that's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we all make. That's what I said this uh, earlier. You know, this is so practical to us that I don't know how anybody could walk away and say, I don't ever think about that. I don't ever do that. If you're alive and breathing, you're going to do that. You're going to struggle with that. So let's just acknowledge that's a part of our life, and it's a challenge that we all have. But that's where sexual sin begins. And it's not innocent. It's not harmless. It's not to be made light of. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that we need to treat lust as if it were the act itself, because lust in itself is a sin. And then Jesus goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to tumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this is how serious it is. This is how serious lust is and letting any part of your body losing control of that. Now, in that day, the right hand and the right eye were considered to be important than the left. Sorry about lefties. You are special, but in that day, they didn't, the right hand was the most, most important. Now, obviously, though, Jesus isn't talking literally about taking a saw and cutting off your hand or poking out your eye. Your eye. He's not doing that. Unfortunately, down through time, some misguided people have done that. But you know what? That doesn't help because the problem is not in the eye, not in the hand, it's in the mind, the heart. Sexual sin is a heart issue, not a hand, and an eye issue, and you still have a left hand and a left eye. So left unchecked, you're going to be poking both eyes out. That's not the solution. Jesus is not talking about mutilation. He's talking about what we would call mortification. I know that's a new word that we don't use very often, but mortification just means taking up the cross of Christ. It means following Jesus. It means intentionally limiting yourself. It means not doing something because that's, you, don't need, you need to go there or want to go there. So if your eye causes you to sin, don't look at something. 
If your hand caused you to sin, don't do that. If your foot caused you to, to sin, then don't go there. That's how you limit yourself. That's, you don't mutilate yourself. You limit yourself to ways that honor God and keep your body pure. Now, since Jesus focuses on what the eye sees and how that can take us down a long road, let's talk about what you might be seeing that can lead to sexual sin in your heart or definitely lust. I don't know if you knew this or not, but every month, internet porn sites receive more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. More porn is viewed than those three big sites that some of us are on almost daily. More than a third of all data viewed is porn-related. Globally, porn's estimated to be a $100 billion industry. Understand that sex trafficking is what feeds pornography in a great way. So when you look at pornography, you are aiding to and enabling sex trafficking. Someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's mother. When you look at pornography, you are a part of that and enabling and funding that. A new study claims that 73% of teenagers surveyed said that they have consumed pornography and at the average age of first consuming it is the age of 12. 64% of self-identified Christian men and 15% of self-identified Christian women view pornography at least once a month compared to, this is interesting, 65% of non-Christian men. Did you catch that? 64% of Christian men and 65% of non-Christian men acknowledge that and 30% of non-Christian women. But there is a little bit of good news. Regular church attendees are 26% less likely to look at porn than non-attenders. But here's another interesting figure. Those who are self-identified as fundamentalists are 91% more likely to look at porn. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists of Jesus' day, telling everybody else, don't do this, but on the other side, and in private, they were doing it themselves. So a lot of people are looking at porn, and a lot of people are assuming that it's okay because they don't think it hurts anybody. First of all, it hurts a lot of people in the area of trafficking. The reality is that porn is one of the most damaging and destructive things that you can do to your mind, body, and soul. A couple of years ago, a musician named Billie Eilish, who I don't follow, not my kind of music, she doesn't claim to be a Christian, but she revealed that she started watching pornography at the age of 11. And something, it's something she regrets because she said it destroyed my brain. She believes that watching violent pornography caused her to suffer from sleep paralysis and night terrors, and it distorted her view of sex. If I'm so angry that porn is so loved, and I'm so angry at myself for thinking that it was okay. Now, Billie Eilish is not a model that our youth should follow. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I'm saying is that when someone like her admits how dangerous it is, then we should listen. We need to listen up when someone who is not even a believer says, this destroyed my brain. Why is porn wrong? Porn leads you to sexualize every person, every relationship, and every situation. You just look at it sexually in a different way if that's where your mind's at. Young people are getting a, a totally distorted view of sex, and there are direct psychological correlations as well as the likelihood of pregnancy, premarital sex, and sexually transmitted diseases. And along with that comes the shame and the guilt that this sin brings. Sexual sin is different. The Bible acknowledges that. We'll read that in a second. Porn is destructive to marriages, even if you view it together. It is not going to help your marriage. Porn causes affairs. 
Most divorces have a sexual sin as part of it. So Jesus said, don't even flirt with immorality. You will always lose. You will always lose. Now, if you struggle with this, and nobody is exempt from this, but if it's a struggle of yours with porn, I would encourage you to find somebody that you trust and become accountability partners with them using a, a, a website called uh, Covenant Eyes or Triple X Church. Those are monitoring sites. They will help you monitor yourself, hold you accountable, and send your visits to other people that you trust that will challenge you on that. And that's hard to do, but we need that if you struggle with that. Nobody plans to fall into lust. Nobody plans to commit adultery or be sexually immoral. It's one of the most subtle temptations, but it's also one of the most preventable. A preventable temptation if you put some effort into that. So put up guardrails in your life so you will not be tempted and fall. Honestly, evaluate your life and make whatever changes are necessary to protect yourself if you struggle with this. Don't be embarrassed to tell someone that you struggle with it because they may as well, and maybe you need an accountability partner. Well, that brings us to what Jesus said next in Matthew chapter 5. Being hard on us today, isn't he? But very blunt, honest. Matthew 5, it has been said, he, he said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then I want to add alongside of this, Matthew 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, there was a very lax divorce culture in Jesus' day. We don't think about that, but it was God had allowed Moses to give the people a law of divorcement because they were doing these things anyway. And God said, we need to free up this woman so she can have maybe marry someone and not have to be a beggar or a prostitute. And they, but they were abusing it. And Jesus said, when you divorce for any and every reason, you commit adultery. You make her commit adultery and you make whoever she marries commit adultery. Not only are you sinning, but you're forcing other people to sin as well. You know, in the late 60s, then President Ronald Reagan signed what was called in California the Family Law Act. Probably never heard of that. But what it was was the first no-fault divorce law. Started in California, where everything evil seems to start for some reason. But soon it was legal all over the country. Every state adopted this, welcoming uh, this freedom now, but weakening the traditional family, since now one person could end the marriage unilaterally. It also threw open the door for marriages of same-sex partners since adultery, which has a particular definition, was taken off the law books. Later, President Reagan admitted this was, this was one of the worst mistakes he had ever made as he saw the devastation of divorce and what his decision had started. It took a big man to admit that, but he realized that was a big, big mistake. You know, the Bible gives two reasons that divorce is permissible. Jesus explains one right here, and that is the area of sexual immorality. The word that's used here is the word pornea, which is where we get porn, right? But it also refers to, figure, to flagrant and habitual sexual immorality without any desire whatsoever to repent and to be faithful. Sexual intimacy within marriage is so sacred and it's so spiritually significant that a violation of this is enough in God's eyes for the marriage to be broken. 
And the reason is because the marriage is now shattered in that you can't be one with two people at the same time, and it destroys the trust and the fabric of the relationship, especially if it's habitual and unrepentant. The second reason the Bible gives for divorce is physical abandonment. And this is in 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So if there is abandonment by an unbeliever, the Bible says you're not bound to that person. And it follows from this that if their behavior is of such a nature that it forces separation, which would be illegal or unsafe behavior like drug use or physical abuse, and if you are forced to separate yourself for the safety of yourself or your children, that's a form of abandonment. But the separation should be for counseling to see if the spouse is repentant and the marriage can be reconciled. And this is specifically directed to an unbelieving spouse, notice that, who abandons the marriage in some way. So the Bible doesn't make it easy. Certainly, God didn't plan for it to be easy. God had a personal plan for all of us in marriage, and it should not be changed or weakened or betrayed. But let me just say this. In neither case does the Bible require divorce, only it permits it. And the very best thing, the most important thing, would be repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And that may seem to be almost impossible, but it is possible. I know several couples who are living proof of that, and their marriages are stronger and greater because God can heal what we foolishly break. Purity really all comes down, what Jesus is saying, to personal integrity. And that kind of leads us to our final scripture today, where Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfill it to the Lord, the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I think it's more than coincidence that Jesus Um, talks about, says these words following his words on marriage. I think it's important to recognize that he had a, he was following a a continued uh, chain of thought. The people of that day would make oaths and they would practice swearing uh, on really, about really insignificant things uh, that didn't matter, just very casual in doing that. And they would swear by things like their life or their health or their wealth or something like that. And Jesus said, don't trivialize your word in that way. Don't don't just swear an oath about insignificant things. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that people can trust you and believe you. You say what you mean and mean what you say. And he said, when you make a vow, which are few, by the way, you need to keep that. In fact, the Bible says it's better not to make a vow than it is to make it and then break a vow. If you give your life to Christ, understand that is a vow and that it demands your personal and your sexual purity. Keep your word to God. If you get married and you make wedding vows, keep them. I don't know about you, but these are the vows that Lori and I made, and these are the ones that people I share with people today. Let me remind you what they say. I take you to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, 
to love and to cherish from this day forward until we are parted by death. And then at the end, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Serious vows that are made and few. Now I know that as I began, that a lot of what we talked about today has been unsettling. It's been unsettling because it touches us where we are. I mean, we may look good on the outside. Nobody knows what we do in our private time and our, our, our thoughts and uh, where we go there. Uh, but God knows. God knows. And what's amazing is that God knows you and exactly what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, whatever we're doing, God knows. Because God knows everything and God's word is practical and hits us where we live. So before we leave today and all of us walk out of here beat up, uh, let me, as your pastor, give you three words to remember, all right? The first word is the word stop. The word stop. Whatever it is that you need to stop, stop doing it. Just stop. If you're involved in porn and lust, if you're engaged in sex outside of marriage, if you're living together and you're not married and you're having an affair or with someone, or if you're divorcing without a biblical reason, stop. Just stop. We don't understand that we can control these things. We can stop. You weren't made for this. And this is a sin not only for disobeying God, but it has a negative effect on you. There's a reason why God says this. First Peter, or first, first Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Isn't it interesting that the Bible sets apart the sexual sins as different from other sins. So whether it be premarital sex or adultery or viewing porn or uh, whatever it might be, sexual sin has a way of altering our brain function. I think maybe Billie Eilish was close. She said, it destroyed my brain. And when we indulge in these repeatedly, it can lead to what the Bible calls a seared conscience, which basically means an actual brain phenomenon that numbs us to guilt and conviction of our wrongdoing. So we forget, we, we don't think it's wrong anymore. We've justified it. We've gone and continually do it. And it may soon become difficult for us to figure out how to get out of it. And that's one thing that I've noticed about relationships and immorality. And we get wrapped up in these things and we can't, I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to get out. I don't know what to do. It's difficult. It's messy. It's hard to get out of your situation and make it right. But here's the thing, with God's help, it can be made right. With our help, we as a church will help you get out of this. We'll help you walk through it, whatever it is. There's nothing so bad that you've done that you can't withdraw it, that you can't get out of it. So the first word, stop. The second word is forgiveness. And we all need to hear this. Because if this message had brought awareness to you of something in your life that you've been justifying then you need to know about forgiveness. If, if you've got guilt about decisions that you've made in the past, know that you can be forgiven. That's the great news. We have to know we're wrong before we can be forgiven. We have to acknowledge that, but we can be forgiven. God's word says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and, and purify you all from all unrighteousness. So you can regain your purity. You can make things right again in this situation, whatever you're in, and it could be any number of things. It's not too late. You can be forgiven. That's the great news. Make him the Lord of your life right now and live in purity going forward. Be forgiven. And the third word is commitment. Commitment. Commit yourself 
to live faithfully in whatever situation you're currently in. If you are single, and that's where God's put you now, commit to live a pure life. If you are married, put Christ at the center of your marriage. Even if your marriage isn't perfect, you do your part to be as committed to Christ as you can. A good marriage is not built on compatibility or circumstances or emotions. Uh, it's built on commitment. That's a choice. It's a bonus to be in love with the person that you have. Feelings of love are great, but there are going to be times you don't feel very loving toward them, and you don't even like them, but you're committed to them. That's the difference that it is. And that's when you have to decide if you're truly committed to them and to God when you don't care for them or love them at the moment. And you know what? This kind of commitment is hard for us to even fathom, but it comes from a God who was so committed to us sinful people. He knows everything we do. He's so committed anyway that he gave his only son to come down here to live among us, to be one of us, to be abused by us, knowing that full well. He knew that. And there are times that we could still reject him. Even as his people, we still disobey him. We still do these things and, and think these things that are wrong. But he's so committed to us that he hangs in there with us. He doesn't give up on us. And so my challenge would be to give him a chance to show you and teach you that there is hope. Whatever your situation is, when you stop, you seek forgiveness, and you commit yourself to serve the Lord, no matter what it is, no matter how deep it is, how bad it is, how lost and overwhelmed you might feel to get out of it, you can do so. God can help. We want to help you as a church family get in a place where you're in obedience to God. Wow, it's kind of a heavy topic today, isn't it? You know, kind of laid it on us, but... But I think we all need to hear this. And Jesus obviously thought so because he included this in this great Sermon on the Mount. So what we need to do is absorb it, not feel beat up, not feel abused, not feel guilty, not feel shame, but lay it before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. If maybe the Lord's put a burden on your heart, you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody uh, about it, uh, I'm available. Tony is. We'll have other folks that'll step up that'll be available. We would love to just share with you and pray. Take it to the Lord. Find freedom. Find forgiveness. Lift the burden off your heart that, that sin brings to us. And find his love and his hope and forgiveness in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I know that this topic has hit every one of us probably. If we're breathing, we deal with it. And God, I pray that you will just help us overcome this. Father, awareness is where, we, where our forgiveness begins, when we acknowledge what we're doing is wrong. And then, Lord, we, we love you enough to say, this is where I wanna, what I want to do, but God, I know you want different from my life. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us find freedom from this, Lord. Whatever it might be, it varied. Uh, any of the things we talked about today, God, that you would just touch our lives and draw us to you. Father, strengthen our personal purity, strengthen our marriages, our families, Lord, that we would live different from the world and we'd be a light that shines out in darkness. Father, I pray you'll help us seek you, find your grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together to worship him.